Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jeannie Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today is Dr. Wang Ten, Associate Professor of History at Hope College. His recent new publication, Blind in Early Modern Japan, Disability, Medicine, and Identity, Studies about blindness in early modern Japan, uh, specifically the Tokugawa period from 1600 to uh, roughly 1868. Uh, This book studies about how people with visual impaired lived and interacted with society. So uh, welcome, Dr. Tan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Hi, everyone. I'm Wayne Tan, uh, an associate professor of history at Hope College in uh, Michigan. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So can you tell us about yourself? What do you research about? What do you teach about? And uh, what drew you to this topic? Uh, Sure. Uh, In my research and teaching, I focus on Japanese history uh, and particularly enjoy exploring Japanese history in the context of disability studies, the history of medicine, science and technology and global history. For me, this book, Blind in Early Modern Japan, reflects my interest in all these contexts and their uh, intersections with one another. I'm very excited to share my thoughts about uh, the writing process and also talk more about uh, the goals of this book. Thank you. I'm very excited to hearing about your writing process and your research process of of this book. Um, So how did this project come to be? Um, Because you mentioned in the preface that Japan is an exceptionally blind-friendly country. So what are some of the major differences you've noticed um, in Japan comparing with other countries regarding um, how society treated blind um, people or how um, anyone with visual impaired could go about uh, with life in Japan? Yeah, thank you very much uh, for this question. Uh, That's right. As I share in the book preface on my first trip to Japan, I noticed the cues and aids all around me for visually impaired people. 
from the engineered chirping sounds at crosswalks to the tactile patterns on the ground for a person using a walking cane to read their uh, directions. Um, I wouldn't say that I've traveled to a lot of places, uh, but in Japan, it was the first time I felt so keenly about the sensory experience of the built environment. And until then, I had never thought so deeply about uh, the consequence of uh, visual impairment in uh, an environment built for non-blind uh, people. Um, I view myself as a sighted person, and this self-identity is shaped by society's visions uh, of who a sighted person is. Uh, but due to vision issues, I rely on the use of corrective lenses to do everyday things. And that's part of my self-identity too, as sighted but with uh, conditions. So I really wanted to use that experience in Japan uh, to write about disability in Japan. And it was a matter of figuring out uh, the direction of the narrative. That's great. And um, as far as I know, there hasn't been a lot of studies on um, this specific topic. So I'm really glad that you wrote this whole thing, this whole study on blindness, and especially in the early modern period, when I would imagine it's a bit more difficult um, from studying about contemporary uh, situation. Now, the central question of your book is, what did it mean to be blind in Tokugawa, Japan? So how did you approach this question? Um, what aspects did you focus on? Yeah, so I think um, as I explored the culture of blindness and blind people of Japan after that first trip to Japan, I had a couple of what I would call cultural highlights. Um, the first was when I learned about blind masseurs. I remember reading about them and hearing about them uh, when I was in Japan. And it struck me as interesting that blind people today in Japan and in other places are employed as masseurs. But what I thought was even more interesting was that blind masseurs in Japan gained popularity during the early modern period. Uh, it seemed reasonable that blind masseurs could perform massage without sight, but I wondered how did they get involved in the profession in the first place? How were they trained and why were they popular? As I searched for clues about blind masseurs in Japanese historical sources, I came across representations of blind people in early modern Japanese popular culture. So I followed the trail through contemporary popular culture and embraced my uh, second cultural highlight, my encounter with uh, the modern icon Zatoichi. Uh, Zatoichi is the leading blind fictional character of a TV series and films set in early modern Japan. He is sometimes portrayed as a monsieur and a musician, but he is most famously celebrated as a swordsman. He embodies a superhuman abilities that Japanese audiences imagine blind people to possess. And while this image of the mysterious, powerful, clairvoyant blind person shows up in many cultures around the world, I was drawn to the early modern Japanese period that was the setting for all of Satoichi's uh, adventures and misadventures. What was the reality of blind people in early modern Japan? Who were blind people? How did they actually live? These questions and their answers are uh, intertwined with one another. But first, I had to clarify the context of blindness, what blindness was, how it affected people, before I could get into the details of the lived experiences of blind people. 
So as I thought more about the shape of this book, I gathered all of those thoughts and ideas around this question. What did it mean to be blind in uh, early modern Japan? So that kind of is the background for uh, why that question became the central question in this uh, book. And in terms of audience, I imagine that this book would be read by my students in a history or general education class. I wanted my students who are primarily undergraduates who didn't know much about Japan or about disability to be captivated by a different culture, just as I was when I was in Japan for the first time. And by a different framework of thinking about disability in a different time and place. I also wanted scholars in, in different fields to find something new in this book, perhaps a new way of reading Japanese history organized around a disability-centered perspective. I wanted this book also to be accessible to blind and non-blind readers and listeners who may read it or listen to it in uh, different formats. So I hope that I've uh, accomplished at least uh, one of these goals. So as to the question of what did it mean to be blind in early modern Japan, let me first try to answer this question as a disability historian interested in blindness and say more about how, from that perspective, we can study disability history from the inside out or from within the actual context of early modern Japan. I think this question, what did it mean to be blind in early modern Japan, is an important one because it compelled me to think about the sources, not only what kinds or genres of sources I chose, but also how I read those sources to organize the discussion of the multi-layered meanings of blindness. Um, a lot of what we do as disability historians tends to deal with social history. But let me take a slightly different track and begin by talking about the medical aspect of disability. There's a tendency in disability studies scholarship to consciously de-emphasize the medical perspectives on disability. I think this has to do with the tension in disability history between the medical thought of disability as conditions to be cured and the more recent rights-based social thought of disability to restore rights to people with disabilities to be uh, who they are. So for this book, I realized from early on that developing a medical approach was necessary to get to some of the answers because disability was thought to have a medical basis. And this was true throughout Japan's early modern period and before then too, of course. Early modern Japanese medical texts, for example, those on ophthalmology and those written by medical scholars offer many insights into the ways vision and blindness were studied. Uh, in other words, we understand from those texts the prevailing cultural vocabulary of that era of Japanese history. We understand from those texts too how medical scholars wrote about blindness. There is another practical reason to think about medicine. Blindness affected early modern Japanese society in everyday situations, and when we think about those situations, we can imagine that people affected by blindness or visual impairment more generally were likely people affected by suffering, pain, or discomfort. They would have tried to obtain cures or find relief in treatment through the sources they knew or by drawing on the knowledge they had. In this sense, there's probably not a big difference between then and now in that we seek help for a condition that is physically or emotionally uh, challenging. All of this thinking about medicine and disability 
in relation to each other in human terms, I argue, enriches how we think about disability and its culture uh, and lets us into the mindset of how and why people turn to medicine as a specialty and also as a cultural experience in everyday life. If we leave our medical history, we'll miss key pieces of uh, history. Um, At the same time, I I want to stress that medical history isn't everything because we know that in a social sense, even though blindness was part of everyday life for some people, medicine or medical perspectives didn't necessarily dictate their choices or thoughts. If we want to understand the social meanings of this question, what did it mean to be blind in early modern Japan, we have to look in different places and not limit ourselves to medical sources. We find that disability-based identity was constructed around impairment, such as physical impairment or visual impairment, as well as around attitudes toward those impairments. And in this respect, blindness was a factor of identity, just as today blindness can define a person's identity. What matters, I think, in early modern Japan's context of identity is the status system and how the system enforced the distinctiveness of people's identities based on work or the places they lived. For example, as commoners, a broad status category, peasants, uh, merchants, artisans, performers, shrine priests, and others. Each status group had considerable autonomy to regulate its own affairs. Under the status system, blind people confirmed their status as the blind status group separate from other status groups. And I think this arrangement granted blind people power to be represented through an institution called the Guild or the Blind Guild. And this is a subject that I hope to return to later in this um, conversation. Uh, So one way for blind people to earn their status was through work or through membership in the Blind Guild. Blind people didn't only work as masseurs. Many of them were also musicians who performed new and traditional genres associated with blind musicians. Uh, Many of them were also acupuncturists who learned or practiced massage. These niche professions developed because of Japanese society's perceptions of blind people's disabilities. But also, I argue, because many blind people weighed their options and found opportunities to get trained for those professions through the guild's infrastructure or by seeking other avenues. The sources are less direct in representing blind people's voices in that we can only infer from the sources how blind people dealt with their situations, with work or disability. But by stitching together these different perspectives, um, social perspectives, cultural perspectives, and medical perspectives, we get to glimpse into the broad tapestry of blind people's lives. And this, of course, is why the social and political aspects are the focus of disability history. Uh, and why in a project such as this, this, and for this question about blindness, blindness itself and the lives of blind people come into focus. Fascinating. I have so many, so many questions about what you've just said. Um, so studying early modern literature, uh, many of the cases, many of the recordings, uh, or many of the, I guess, portrayals of blind people that I've encountered um, portray them as usually, like you said, masseuse or usually travel traveling musicians, which I found curious. Um, and monks, monks with a lot of experience, with a lot of knowledge, and monks that can predict the future um, for some reason. So I guess to, to dive in more of the details of a book, 
Um, back in the early modern period, how did people understand blindness? And more importantly, how would a visually impaired person be treated or seen by society? Uh, great. Thank you for those questions. Uh, these were questions that I asked myself throughout the process. I started with uh, what blindness was, and I ended up looking uh, into the details of medical sources um, before branching out to look at the uh, med- uh, social uh, sources. And I think it's, a, um, it's important that we think about the lives of uh, blind people holistically. So not only from the perspective of um, disability historians, uh, but also uh, from the perspectives of people who lived in uh, early modern Japan at that time. So I think this question, how did people understand blindness, is another way of asking what did it mean to be blind in early modern Japan. And it may take some evidence-based imaginative thinking to find some answers. Again, I'll start with uh, a medical perspective. Among medical scholars, there was a general understanding that blindness was visual impairment. And by that, I mean medical scholars thought of blindness as vision loss or poor vision so severe that it impeded a person's ability to see things. We could say that the diagnosis of blindness was a subjective assessment by physicians or medical scholars. Their medical texts and also their medical case studies are valuable for another reason because they recorded quite consistently over time the terms to refer to visual impairment, suggesting that physicians and medical scholars learned from one another and discussed medical conditions in the shared cultural framework of Japanese medicine, which developed from classical Chinese medical thought. Uh, From a patient's perspective, we can tell that blindness caused distress, pain, and suffering. We have diaries and medical texts that commented on blind people's uh, sufferings. And many texts in popular medical culture and popular culture in general recommended different types of cures for visual impairment. In light of consumer culture and print culture, uh, especially from the 18th century onward, people suffering from blindness or from other illnesses would have had access to different sources of information to self-diagnose or perform self-treatment. There is a stereotype even today that often says that blindness is total vision loss. And while that may be true for some, it ignores the fact that some blind people retain some degree of vision. Sight and blindness, I think, back then and now, are related to each other on a spectrum. How much one can see or can't see is a personal experience that a sighted or blind person can describe in many ways without using medical or scientific language. Claiming to have sight or vision to do certain things can be seen as a social statement, a statement of identity of who we are or how we are labeled. I think of my uh, self-introduction earlier in this conversation as an analogy of how people back then might have internalized the knowledge in society to think of their own conditions or others' uh, conditions. And I think it is important that when we read any of the primary sources on social history, that we try not to judge how, quote-unquote, blind a person was. That is to say, we have no way to verify the degree of vision or blindness. But instead, we have to use the context of those sources and the references themselves to acknowledge that 
a person mentioned as a blind person in the sources could have been blind in terms of their social identity. In other words, that person probably had some form of visual impairment significant enough to qualify or justify uh, the reference. And it makes sense that people either identify themselves as blind or referred to by others as blind. We find references to a person visually impaired as in one eye as a blind person. We also find references to blind people who, because they had membership in the guild, passed as blind people in their status classification. There were probably also people who would have been considered blind, but didn't want to identify themselves as being blind. The blind status would have bound them to the guild, for one, or would have steered them toward niche professions. So the social significance of sight in early modern Japan might have dissuaded some from adopting a blind or uh, disabled uh, identity. Um, as for how blind people were viewed, I think there was a range of attitudes. For example, blind men who held prominent appointments in the guild would have been regarded more favorably by their peers and by society than blind men who barely made a living either as guild members or non-guild members. Blind women certainly didn't have the same resources as blind men. Blind women couldn't join the guild because it was for men only. But as musicians, if they were musicians, they might have formed their own groups for kinship and security. Blind women in general faced more discrimination on account of their gender and blindness. Blindness would have facilitated blind people's entry into those niche professions mentioned earlier, namely music, massage, and acupuncture, or would have made them desirable for those professions because of popular ideas that focused on musical flair and tactile intuition, their sense of touch. Blindness wasn't desirable, but I think it created new opportunities and new situations, so to speak, for new employment and new status. It is, of course, a lot harder to figure out how uh, blind people thought of themselves, of their identities, especially those with long-term blindness. Um, it is also difficult to figure out their perceptions of social behaviors and norms because we simply don't have a lot of sources written by them. But I think it is necessary uh, to emphasize that Blind people made choices based on their circumstances and that they played a bigger role in society than what current assumptions or stereotypes of disability would have us believe. So out of complete um, curiosity, you mentioned that for your sources, you looked into diaries and medical books, uh, but you also mentioned that not a lot of them were written by actually blind people. So who were the people that wrote about um visual impairment in early modern Japan? Uh, that Yeah, that's a, a great question. So one of the sources I used was um, uh, the diary written by uh, Kyokute Bakin, who was a celebrated um, Japanese uh, writer. Uh, in his uh, final years of his life, he wrote about his uh, visual impairment, how he was losing sight um, and how he tried different treatments um, to relieve pain and suffering. Um, and he also wrote about how his uh, daughter-in-law took over the, um, the burden of writing, especially uh, on days when he couldn't see or when he simply wasn't uh, feeling well. So I think we see, we have snapshots, so to speak, of uh, blind people uh, or sighted people who became blind, 
who cope with their um, uh, situations um, through the support of, of people around them. So that's uh, one uh, source that I use. Uh, another source, um, or rather uh, other sources uh, deal with medical case studies. Uh, those case studies were written by physicians and medical scholars, of course. But I think we see details of how in their uh, treatments of people with uh, visual impairment, uh, they commented on their pain and suffering um, and also wrote about this desperate quest to find cures or at least some kind of treatment. So we see details of desperation um, by people with suffering from visual impairments because of the emotional and physical toil uh, on them. Now, speaking of treatment, how did um, pre-modern people treat blindness or eye diseases? And um, did their treatment methods develop over time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is also a really interesting question because um, as I was recording the details of my insights, I could see a progression of uh, treatments starting in the traditional paradigm to perhaps a more mixed paradigm that involved uh, European uh, medicine. Um, but let me take a step back and talk about um, the situation today and the situation back then. And today, I think depending on where we live, we may have many options to treat um, eye conditions. And it shouldn't surprise us that people in early modern Japan also had many options. But it is easy to assume that people then didn't have sophisticated methods of treatment or that those treatments were less modern than treatments in North America or uh, Europe. I think, and I argue that the study of cures is essentially the study of the culture of beliefs and the kinds of frameworks that framed those beliefs at that time. And it's not always easy to find equivalence between societies. What made up treatment in uh, early modern Japan, whether it was consuming a pill or paying a visit to a place of worship, was legitimized by cultural norms at that time. Just as how today what we choose to do, whether we see a physician self-medicate or solicit prayers, essentially what is acceptable is subjective, but also defined by our cultural uh, norms. Uh, For some context, traditional Japanese medicine is commonly called Sino-Japanese medicine because classical Chinese medicine provided the original foundation, ideas, and framework. In the Sino-Japanese medical paradigm of early modern Japan, it was believed that vision was linked to the flow of blood and qi or ki or breath. Uh, Essentially, that's the uh, translation. Uh, And blindness was a sign of disruption or disorder. For example, when medical scholars discussed smallpox infection, which has been known to cause um, visual impairment, they wrote extensively about restoring blood flow and vitality to the eyes through uh, medicines. What's really interesting in a lot of these discussions is um, the link, the perceived link between the eyes and the liver, which was the source of uh, vision, so to speak. Some common medicines were decoctions of medicinal plants to be consumed, and these formulas of ingredients and proportions to mix and decoct were recorded and passed down through uh, medical uh, scholarship. 
from the 18th century, we start to see more records of people seeing physicians to get treated for eye diseases and visual impairment than in the previous century. And I think this was because medical services became commonplace. And we see how places far removed from the capital of Edo or Tokyo today had developed links to obtain commodities and were connected to networks of ophthalmologists and physicians in general. Patients, too, could choose from what was available to them, and medical advertisements advertised the specialty knowledge and skills of physicians. Uh, So all this is to say that by the 18th century, we see a very vibrant culture of uh, information uh, and a culture of interactions between people and between people and their sources. Um, And I should also point out that from the late 18th century, Dutch method medicine developed in Japan. So historically, from the early 17th century, the Dutch were the only Europeans officially allowed to trade with the Japanese shogunate through their outposts in Nagasaki. Through the Dutch as intermediaries, Japanese scholars gradually expanded their horizons of knowledge. And Dutch method medicine emerged from these endeavors to translate European medical texts. Dutch method medicine had a lot to offer in the treatment of eye diseases, such as the use of mercury and opiates uh, to treat visual impairment caused by syphilis. But I don't think Dutch method medicine replaced Sino-Japanese medicine, but rather it contributed a different framework of analyzing eye diseases. Patients who tried Dutch method medicine would have learned about uh, various alternative uh, options of uh, treatment. And a lot of these uh, Dutch method medical texts focus on new ways of writing about vision, of explaining optics, for example, and how vision is gained and lost. Uh, let's not forget, too, that people also prepared remedies at home as more and more uh, medical m- manuals were printed for uh, mass audiences. People could find texts on preparing medicines such as eye ointments or eye watches to treat their uh, visual impairments. Uh, and through travel guides, they would have learned where to procure certain medicines and even how much to pay for them. So these medical and popular texts would have supplemented existing uh, medical services. Um, one final aspect, I think, has to do with uh, the religious aspect of cure. And this aspect, I think, cannot be left out of this narrative. I can think of smallpox as one of those diseases that had an entire religious culture built around it. People feared smallpox because it could cause severe physical impairments, including visual impairments. Hence, they worshipped smallpox deities, uh, observed rituals, performed chants, and wore charms to protect themselves. Vaccination with with the cowpox vaccine didn't arrive in Japan until much later in uh, the 19th century through Dutch method medicine. But then again, vaccination didn't replace many of those earlier treatments. Some temples and shrines too were famous for holy spring waters that could cure eye diseases, or so it was said, and people traveled all over the country as pilgrims and as tourists to those places and other places with the reputation of healing uh, diseases. And I mentioned this because I think that in every culture, we find stories of miraculous cures. 
stories of cures that cannot be explained by scientific rationale, but yet are widely told. And I think that when we take this more open approach of including these accounts of cure, instead of excluding them, and focus more on the culture surrounding cures, instead of asking whether or not those cures actually work, we start to see disability in a different light, as an experience intertwined with people's beliefs, identities, and everyday practices. And that is why much as disability history is social history, political history, and cultural history, it also needs medical history and uh, the social history of medicine. Interesting. Now, what about glasses? So actually, a couple of days ago, when I was in my research, I encountered this uh, illustration about a uh, artist gathering in which every artist was wearing glasses, which I found um, astonishing. Uh, I, you know, nowadays, young people would just wear glasses for fashion. But um, to have an artist gathering where everyone was wearing glasses was quite uh, rare. Um, I, so, so, so I thought, um, how often or how widely were glasses used? Uh, I think that, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I, I, I don't know the answer, but I would say that, um, as you had mentioned, glasses were featured in uh, popular culture, certainly in text. Uh, in the book, I, I wrote about um, the um, uh, representation of glasses uh, in uh, popular culture. Um, I would say that glasses or spectacles were curiosities uh, it, to the extent that they helped with vision, especially for people who felt that they had low vision or poor vision would have tried glasses. And certainly if you had lived in the city of Edo, I think there would have been a lot more options to obtain spectacles than say um, in a a more remote uh, place, simply because in terms of entertainment, in terms of commodities, there was just a lot more in uh, the city of uh, Edo. And I think this is also interesting because when we think about glasses and spectacles, we think about uh, prescriptions, that these have to be calibrated to, you know, adjust uh, or adjusted to help you attain so-called perfect vision or quote-unquote normal vision. I don't think that concept of um, normal or normal vision was um, prevalent in early modern Japan. Certainly people who wore glasses would have felt that their vision was improved. Whether or not they could see things perfectly, I think that is a completely different uh, question. And and to speak to your point also about gatherings of scholars wearing glasses, I think there's, there was this association too that, uh, you know, between glasses and uh, educated people. Certainly, bibliophiles, people who loved reading books, uh, would have been pictured with glasses as a sign of their erudition or at least... Um, you know, a statement that they probably read too much and thus and developed uh, vision problems. So these are just uh, guesses, um, but you know, it's it's certainly something to think about. That people back then thought of glasses quite differently than how we would think of um, glasses today. That's very interesting. I feel so much educated <laughs> um, wearing my glasses. Now, <laughs> back to the book. Your discussion of the guilds seems to be a very important part of your book. So can you tell us why these guilds were important in the identity formation of visually impaired people? Um, How did the guilds function? You mentioned that they excluded women. Um, And uh, what about 
the people like these women or the people who didn't want to join a guild or those who simply could not join a guild? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that is uh, an important question to ask about the role of the blind guild or the guild. Um, because the role of the guild holds the key to understanding the social impact of blindness on a person's uh, status, um, connections, and belonging. So let me start in the medieval period, um, and I'll give just a, an overview of the founding of the guild. The guild was founded in Kyoto, uh, some perhaps sometime in the 13th century or maybe early 14th century. It served as an elite academy to teach blind male musicians to perform the tale of the heike, which is spelled H-E-I-K-E. Uh, and this was an epic story of the heike clan and the clan's struggles to compete for imperial authority. In a typical performance, a blind musician chanted lines from the tale and played music with an instrument called the biwa, which is a type of lute. And these performances developed into a musical genre, which is referred to as heike music. So throughout the medieval period, heike music was popular among the aristocrats. And the leading blind heike musicians of the day earned repeated invitations to perform and also received generous gifts from their patrons. What is important to note is that the guild awarded ranks that recognized blind heike musicians' uh, skills. The guild had a hierarchy and it took years for a guild member to rise to the top. And while we don't know the size of the guild's membership in the medieval period, we do know that through the guild, blind people in the early modern period acquired their identities. There was a major change, however, in the transition from the medieval period into the early modern period. Under the, the early modern regime, uh, people across society acquired their statuses through occupations or work and the places they lived, and they managed their affairs through their status group membership. The guild was transformed into an institution that validated the blind status identity, and it had the autonomy, so to speak, to govern blind people or people who claim to be blind as a distinctive status group. The guild over time established branches all over Japan. So by the early modern period, certainly by the 18th century, we see that it had a much broader, more extensive reach than it had in the medieval period. So a guild member belonged to the local guild group in the place where he lived. So through the network of branch guilds uh, groups, we see how the guild extended its reach to subsume uh, guild members under its uh, authority. Another feature was the range of occupations that the guild represented. Previously, the guild was reserved for blind Haker musicians, but from the early modern period, the guild was politically repurposed, so to speak, so that its main goal was no longer to train blind male musicians to become Haker musicians, but rather to serve as the institution to govern blind people, no matter what their occupations were. From the early um, 18th century, for example, we see that Haken musicians formed a minority of the guild's membership. Many blind people who were trained as musicians performed popular genres with other musical instruments, particularly the koto, spelled K-O-T-O, and the shamisen, spelled S-H-A-M-I-S-E-N. To some degree, the guild still 
served a vocational purpose and it expanded its infrastructure so that guild members were free to accept students and could teach their students whatever specialty skills they had. Often in addition to or apart from music, guild members were trained as masseurs and acupuncturists. How blind people gain popularity in massage and acupuncture is a fascinating story. And I tell that story in the book too to show how blind people transformed music as a medicine rather as medical uh, healers in uh, the new popular medical uh, culture. Whatever the profession or background, a guild member earned his place in the guild's hierarchy. Uh, Compared to the medieval period when guild members earned ranks commensurate with their musical skills in Heike, in the early modern period that was no longer the case. Each guild member was required to pay a fee for a rank. Uh, the higher the rank, the more it cost, and that became a source of anxiety. Guild members who had limited financial resources struggled. In addition, they had to pay their masters to be trained in their prof- uh, occupations and routinely paid fees for rituals celebrated by the guild. So all of those fees took a toll on guild members, especially those at the bottom of the guild's hierarchy. Blind money lenders uh, were mentioned in the historical records from the 18th century, which would suggest that guild members resorted to to money lending to raise fees quickly. Uh, And as you can imagine, money lending was a risky business at that time uh, that caused uh, social problems. But those guild members who had the financial means to purchase high ranks ended up with greater privileges. They collected dues from the guild's treasury and earned uh, social recognition through their appointments. So we might ask, what was the incentive to join the guild? I think one incentive was the opportunity to learn skills for occupations, even if the training and the fees for ranks took a huge financial toll. Another incentive, I think, was the collective power of the guild, its power to represent guild members in some matters. For example, blind people in general, regardless of membership uh, in the guild, had the privilege of collecting alms from their uh, communities. Uh, So they had uh, recourse to charity, so to speak. Uh, And that was a source of income. In certain cases, we see how the guild intervened to argue for guild members to receive a greater share of alms than non-guild members. And in other cases, we see how the guild defended the right of guild members to collect alms. Um, so let me get to the question about people, blind people who um, didn't join uh, the guild. Uh, as mentioned earlier, because of the guild's gender discrimination, blind women were excluded from the guild. Uh, we know a lot less about blind women in general than about blind men. And I think this could be because the guild overshadowed the lives of non-guild members. But we do have some details about the lives of blind female musicians. And that's because they were the most prominent professionals among uh, blind women in early modern Japanese society. Blind female musicians performed genres of the shamisen and they traveled in groups around their regional circuits as traveling musicians. In their own groups, they were family to one another, like a matriarchal household, and formed uh, bonds that ensured their uh, unity. Um, the relative scarcity of sources on other professions of blind women could also be a sign that blind women had less employment options than blind men. 
or that fine women weren't noted for their work in those areas. In massage, for example, we see many references to blind masseuses, but fewer references to blind women as masseuses. And the accounts that we have about prominent blind people were about blind men. Another example of the gender bias against blind women, whose work was possibly devalued by able-bodied, able-sided people and by the killed. So even though blindness affected both men and women, a sympathetic or empathetic reading of the sources will help us understand some of the hardships that women faced in uh, society. There is sometimes a misunderstanding too that the guild and only the guild offered opportunities to blind men. While it is true that guild membership could give some blind members an advantage, not every blind man eligible to join the guild would have done so. In fact, we find that it was quite common for blind men to avoid the guild. In some cases, they had support from their families and could be taken care of financially and materially. And in other cases, they uh, worked in those professions that employed blind people, but simply refused to become blind members, uh, blind guild members. Uh, and there was little that the guild or the regime could have done other than to urge them to take up guild membership. We see decrees issued time and again over the, the 18th and 19th centuries by the regime, ordering blind men to offer their services to the guild. But we know that it was challenging to enforce any kind of penalty against non-guild members. Guild membership was burdensome in some ways with all the obligations. So for many blind men, they probably thought, why not find work and maintain their independence without guild membership? Uh, so to conclude, let me try to put all of this in uh, perspective. Uh, blind people in early modern Japan took different paths. A disease or illness could have caused blindness at a young age, and the blind child would likely have lived with the family in the same household. In one case study that I discussed, the parents of a blind girl sent her away to be trained as a musician. And I think that practice was probably quite common because of the urgency of helping blind girls become self-sufficient through work, especially in uh, families that were struggling financially. For other families, if they had the means to support their blind children, they might have kept them at home for as long as they could. Blind men who were guild members often began their guild membership at a young age by first becoming students of guild members in the vicinity. Uh, the sooner they had skills, the sooner they could make a living. So I think the same logic kind of applies. For those blind people who became blind in adulthood, they could have tried to make a living on their own in niche professions without the guild or outside formal structures of belonging. And we know too from sources that some of those blind men and women took up odd jobs to support themselves or were supported by their uh, families. The historical sources certainly don't tell us everything, but I think we can get a fairly good sense of the range of everyday lives of blind people from those sources. And we have to recognize that the circumstances vary widely from person to person. But of course, we have to extrapolate from the evidence to fill in some of the gaps in our knowledge of those blind people's lives. And I think that's what makes this research so interesting. Yes, I completely agree. And I really enjoyed um, the several case studies in which you discussed how uh, several uh, visually impaired figures coped with the conditions and eventually uh, found success in life. Um, so can you just uh, give us a brief introduction of one of these examples? 
Sure, of course. Uh, someone I introduce and feature in this book is Ogino Chichi. Uh, Chichi is spelled C H I I C H I, uh, a blind male musician of Heike who lived from the early 18th century through the turn of the 19th century. And I'll refer to him as Chichi throughout this account. Uh, as I trace his life, I'll draw comparisons with other blind people to point out what he had in common with them and also why he was special. Uh, Chichi was born in uh, Hiroshima sometime in 1731. It appears that at around the age of six, he suffered from an illness that caused blindness. We don't know the details of the illness, but at that time, contagious diseases like smallpox and measles were common causes of blindness in uh, childhood. But those diseases, of course, could have affected anyone at any age. Uh, Chi Chi became a guild member in his teens, and his choices would have paralleled those of other young men who joined the guild. Uh, he became a student of a guild member, and in addition to music, he would likely have learned skills in massage and acupuncture because those were professions that were represented by the guild and were popular professions of blind men. But whether he chose to specialize in heike because of his interest in the genre or because his master was an expert of heike, it is clear that um, Chiji excelled in it. And after his training, he headed to Kyoto where the guild headquarters were uh, located. Chiji's primary composition, whose title I have translated from Japanese into English as Correct Tunes of Heike, uh, includes a preface that gives us important insights into his career after his move uh, to Kyoto. So this is one of the rare primary sources that allows us to reconstruct uh, the details of um, his life. Uh, and I think it is also really important that we use these existing sources to piece together the lives of everyday um, blind men or blind women. In Chi Chi's case, the move was a big step in his career because he became connected to uh, the elite uh, leadership of the guild and was in, uh, introduced to well-respected teachers who taught him heike tunes that were usually taught to only the most accomplished uh, musicians. Through these connections, Chi Chi was said to have performed before aristocrats and cemented his reputation uh, in the genre. In this sense, his career path was quite traditional in that he focused on heike, the traditional genre of the guild. Uh, most of Chi-Chi's uh, contemporaries certainly wouldn't have this wouldn't have agreed with uh, Chi-Chi's choice because heike was a dying tradition, and the clientele had shrunk by the 18th uh, century. The genre couldn't compete with more fashionable, trendy genres of the koto and shamisen. Uh, for the practical reason of having to make a living, most blind musicians, guild members or not, would have had to choose to maintain and perform a broad uh, repertoire of music. I think one factor that made a big difference was Chi Chi's support by a samurai family. After, after living in Kyoto, uh, Chi Chi moved east to Nagoya. Nagoya had a vibrant cosmopolitan culture and Chi Chi could have moved there to find new prospects. Once he was there, he was hosted by a samurai family whom he could have gotten to know through his connections with the guild or during his time in Kyoto. The host helped Chi Chi set up an academy where 
He taught Heike to students. And this relationship between Chi Chi and his host was mutually beneficial. So through the sponsorship, Chi Chi had stability in his career and the academy would have boosted the family's reputation. By the end of uh, his career, Chi Chi held a high rank uh, in the guild, uh, another sign of his success. In these two areas, with regard to his high rank and the sponsorship that he received, Chi Chi distinguished himself from the rest of the guild membership and from other blind people because most didn't have the means to earn high ranks or find secure sponsorship. And I think there is also another uh, interesting and important aspect of uh, Chi Chi's career, and it is something that I touched on earlier. Chi Chi's text, Correct Tunes of Heike, is linked to him, but I should point out that the authorship of the text was a lot more complicated. The preface was written by his sighted students who were scholars and amateur fans of the genre. Uh, they were amateurs as in they weren't professional musicians but studied the genre out of personal interest. And it remains an open question as to who wrote the actual text, the verses and musical notations on the pages. We have to recognize that these collaborations between blind musicians and sighted people as amateurs, as copyists, was a lot more common than has been uh, noted. Blind musicians like Chi Chi would have known the genre by heart. This knowledge would have been ingrained in his memory, and he wouldn't have had to rely on uh, written text for his performances. So more likely, Chi Chi's text, as well as other musical texts of blind musicians, was written for sighted audiences to study, appreciate, and compare the technicalities of uh, performances. And thanks to written texts like Chi Chi's text, we have a textual record of uh, the genre and also a better understanding of how different blind musicians could have approached uh, a performance. And another reason uh, why this text is so important, as I mentioned earlier, is because it is one of the rare sources on the life of a blind uh, person. So from a broader perspective, I think one way to think about Chi Chi's success is to think of him as someone who used his disability to get involved in society. The uh, sighted blind collaboration we see in Chi Chi's work is one example of how blind people made an impact on sighted people's lives by choosing to participate in activities that deepen their relationships with audiences, thereby leaving their mark in the pages of history. Now, my last question for you um, is that, um, well, so your book kind of, uh, you use um, research methods, you approached this question of blindness in early modern Japan from multiple perspectives from uh, medical history, from uh, cultural history, from, uh, from literature. So through this book, what kinds of connections do you hope to make um, within or outside of Japanese history or Japanese studies? Um, thank you for this question. I, I certainly hope that disability will become more prominent in uh, the analysis of Japanese society, no matter what period we're dealing with, because I think disability history has a lot to offer in terms of how we see things anew uh, through the lens of um, disability. 
I hope that this book will be the start of new conversations of how we do disability history, especially as the field expands into global regions outside the U.S. and Europe. And I also hope that this book will become a reference in cross-cultural work on uh, the boundaries of this category we call disability in terms of what disability constitutes and how we survey and compare different societies and time periods in uh, disability history. Um, in Japanese studies, I think this book repositions disability at the intersection, uh, as you have said, of social history, cultural history, and uh, medical history through discussions of medicine, status, culture, and identity in the early modern period. Of course, the later context of Japanese society changed quite dramatically, actually. Uh, and even though uh, the conditions were different, I hope that readers and listeners can see how the early modern period was formative in the ways that disability enhanced blind people's power in society, which became part of the legacy of disability and disability-based identity that later periods embraced. There's only space for the early modern period in this book, though in the epilogue I discuss some of um, the developments through the 20th century. Uh, so stay tuned for more as I for a sequel as I investigate further. Um, I also want readers and uh, listeners to use uh, disability history as a lens to approach the history of the world in ways that previously hadn't been explored or in ways that were quite simply overlooked. Um, we can connect the history of blindness in early modern Japan to perhaps the history of blindness elsewhere. In my introduction, I suggest that there were important differences between Japan and France and uh, the United States in the early in the 19th century, for example, in the social organization and independence of blind people and in the medical culture surrounding blindness. But we also notice uh, striking similarities, and perhaps this isn't too surprising that people with disabilities were marginalized and faced discrimination. Uh, finally, I see this book as an invitation to hear from others, scholars, students, and readers and listeners about the exciting work that lies ahead of us. How do we step out of the shadow of today's disability stereotypes and assumptions and use these case studies from early modern Japan or from other societies at that time to capture the reality of disability? What would people with disabilities have told us if we could read their words or hear their voices? What can disability history and people with uh, disabilities from diverse backgrounds, from diverse cultures, teach us about how to live our present and future. Uh, so I end with these thoughts and on an optimistic hope uh, note uh, and hope that this book would continue to resonate with new research as it develops and speak to new questions as they arise. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for this intriguing conversation. I'm certainly looking forward to the sequel of the book. I thank you very much. Thank you for having me uh, as a guest on this um, show. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. To learn more about this topic, make sure to check out um, the new book, uh, Blind in Early Modern Japan, Disability, Medicine, and Identity by Dr. Wang Tan. It's currently available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. I hope one day it will be available as an audiobook as well. This is Jingyi Lee from New Book in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode.